I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. My guest today is Eric Schoenberg, who's the uh, uh, Adjunct Associate Professor at the Wharton School of Business and also the Chairman of uh, Campus Works. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, we, nice we to be here. We just met a, at a secret society meeting <laughs> a couple <laughs> right. of weeks ago. Indeed. <laughs> uh, but we're, we're here to talk about, I guess, lots of interesting things. I know you teach the class at uh, Family Enterprises at Wharton. Yes. Uh, but what I was interested in as we started talking is I realized that, you know, predating that, you were actually heavily involved in the 90s in... Uh, technology investment banking. Yeah, I mean, the story of where I ended up today does begin in the early 90s. I mean, arguably I think begins earlier than that. every great story begins right? in the early yeah. 90s. <laughs> um, so I, I, uh, I, I went to Wharton myself. I have an MBA from there. And when I graduated business school, I went to work for a small um, boutique investment bank that focused on information technology companies. It did merger and acquisition advisory work. So this would is, was 1993. And in fact, I have a very distinct recollection of, um, of being on Bloomberg radio, yeah, it was radio, not television, uh, talking about the IPO of Netscape, which I think was like 1994. Yeah. And uh, I will say, if anybody could turn up that interview, I think I said a few things that probably turned out to be fairly accurate uh, predictions about what was going to play out. Um, But it's fair to say I certainly had no expectation of the kind of massive financial market bubble that was going to emerge among technology stocks over the the course of the 90s. I was at Broadview, correct. I remember that because the uh, industry Standard, uh, red herring. They used to put out these gigantic Bibles that would destroy tables. I mean, full of tombstone ads. Yeah, so Broadview is a firm that was founded in 1973, focused on information technology. That's a really early time to be focused on that marketplace. So when, you know, the technology market really started to boom, we were perfectly positioned to take advantage of it. And it was a great ride. I mean, the early 90s during the boom phase was a lot of fun. There's nothing, no experience quite like being part of a really booming business. Um, Everybody feels smart. Everybody feels good. You're making good money. Um, The problem from my perspective was by the time I became a partner at the end of 1997, I also felt that people in the marketplaces had effectively gone crazy to use a technical term. And, you know, I'm an extremely rational and logical person. And my job was to try and trying to advise companies and CEOs about what they should do. And I basically felt, well, I wanted to grab them by the collar and say, what should you do? You should sell. You should sell now as quickly as you can. But, you know, you can't really do that. And so my discomfort grew and grew until eventually Um, In late 1999, which was about four months before the market peak, I sent an email out to my then 25 partners, I think we were, saying, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb here and predict that the tornado is coming and it's going to be ugly and what are we going to do about it? 
Um, and uh, that prediction ultimately proved to be accurate. But unfortunately, the other prediction I made in that email also proved to be accurate, which I said, I'm going to throw out a Cassandra-like warning here. Because if you recall the story of Cassandra, she's given the gift of foresight, but also the curse that nobody is going <laughs> to believe her. Was the other 80% of your email about the Christmas party? No, no, I was really <laughs> a pure... Well, again, if you're interested in why I realized the end was finally coming, and to be fair... Part of the problem and part of the reason I was ignored was precisely that I'd been skeptical about this thing for years at this point. And I'd been, proven, <laughs> I'd been proven wrong time after time. Whereas, for example, my partner out on the West Coast who, who represented Blue Martin Mountain Arts, which was this electronic greeting cards company. I, you we guys sold, did that deal? Yeah, so we did that, oh that deal. It was over a billion dollar deal. Um, and he, as I put it at the time, had fully drunk the Kool-Aid. <laughs> and so, you know, again, I will get to it. I've become a social psychologist. That's what I am now. And, you know, there's a simple observation that when you're trying to decide who to believe, of course, your tendency is going to be believe whoever's been most successful recently. So why should my partners pay attention to me when he's saying, oh, you know, the future is bright and wonderful? I, I'm really interested in this because I, I remember that time as well. I was at Jupiter Research and uh, mm. you know, we were doing a lot of the reports oh, yeah. that people were I think there was an Eric Schoenberg who worked at Jupiter I Research. Think there was I remember, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. But people were using these numbers to go public, of course, and uh, everyone was drinking the Kool-Aid, as you say. But when you look at that time versus now, what do you feel is different from the, the kind of the, the technology-led valuations that we have today? Is, is it different or are we just in, in another new bubble? Well, like Mark Twain famously observed, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. <laughs> I mean, so jumping ahead a little bit, what happened was I sent that email, got no response. My predictions were correct. You know, the firm started to implode. Um, and so the opportunity cost of leaving was suddenly a lot lower than right. it had been. <laughs> and in addition, um, I now was very passionate about a research topic. And at points in my life previously, I really am an academic at heart. For a variety of reasons, I had chosen not to go down that route when I was younger. And a large part of the reason I think was actually right, which is if you want to do a PhD, um, you better be extraordinarily passionate about what you're studying. It is an awful lot of work and hassle and tedium if you're not just obsessed. And I had never been truly obsessed about anything until now. At this point, I was really obsessed of the question, and not so much why, how did I foresee the future? Why was I right? How did I understand there was a bubble? Um, which is an interesting question, but the more fundamental question I was going to ask was, why did I see the world so differently from my partners? Because these were very smart, financially sophisticated people, technology insiders, who nobody had better information than we did, and also, critically to my mind, not overwhelmingly greedy. I mean, of course, most people have an impression about investment bankers that is not wildly <laughs> inaccurate. Um, but we were a little different. We weren't based in New York City. We were based in New Jersey. Um, I mean, at the time, we found this is an interesting little factoid about Broadview. Uh, as I said, I think we were 25 partners. Not a single one of those partners had ever been divorced. If you look at any investment bank, I guarantee you that is going to be an extraordinarily rare because thing. It, because of the opportunity cost of getting divorced? Not the opportunity cost, but again, it gives you a sense, a flavor of the culture of the firm. We, we, you know, a lot of firms talk about being family friendly, but on Wall Street, it's total bullshit. Yeah. Um, we were family friendly. I got home every night to put my kids to bed. 
And that's why I love the firm. I mean, I love this firm, and that's also part of the story is I liked all of my partners. It's not like I thought they were, you know, crazy people but, but I just worked with. they still didn't see the bubble coming. They still, well, of course, there are varying degrees of what was going on there, and right. that's part of the complex story of what I ended up studying, which is when you're in the midst of a bubble, what really is the psychology that underlies individual decision-making? Um, and I also by the time I'd left Broadview, had developed a theory. And the theory emerged from, I started reading in this literature that is now called Judgment and Decision Making. So there's a guy who is a psychologist at Princeton named Danny Kahneman, um, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics like the year after I started my graduate work. So it goes to show I, I do have good timing in, hmm. in certain characteristics. Um, and he won the Nobel Prize in economics for basically bringing to economic theory a more psychologically realistic view of, of what it is that humans are thinking about, in particular with regard to risk. I mean, Kahneman has written about tons and tons of fascinating phenomenon, the way that humans are not you know, economics has this kind of model of human behavior that depends on two critical assumptions. The first assumption is that the only motivation that people have when they're making economic decisions is self-centered greed. Just trying to pile up as much as you can. In fact, economists go further. They don't think anybody actually cares about piling stuff up. Money itself has no value. That's the theory. Um, what people value is what you can buy with money. Right. So people, you know, work hard in order to be able to buy cars, watches, art, whatever it is. Um, so that's assumption. Oh, and and again, self-centered in the sense that they don't care about anybody else. They just want their pile to be or their consumption to be Everyone's large. Everyone's maximizing their own pile. Their own pile and do not care one way or the other about anybody around you. Hmm. So that's assumption number one. Assumption number two is the assumption of rationality, which is that people pursue that objective in in a in a in the correct way possible they make decisions fully incorporating information not showing any particular biases etc so kahneman has done a huge amount of work and now many other researchers and if i tell people that i am effectively a behavioral economist they tend to focus on that aspect of it that um, people are not fully rational and makes very a number of in many cases, highly predictable errors. The interesting thing for me is that's not what I'm that interested in. I'm interested in the other assumption, which is when people are making the decisions, what goals do they think they have in mind? Hmm. So what happened was I started reading in this literature. And, and here is what Kahneman and his, uh, his partner, Amos Tversky, who unfortunately had passed away by the time the Nobel Prize was awarded, so didn't actually get it because you can't get it if you're dead. Um, so the two of them basically developed what's called prospect theory. And it's a theory about how people look at risk. Standard economic theory, standard finance theory says that people don't like risk and therefore have to get paid in order to bear it. And this is the, the whole logic that underlies the theory of asset pricing is based on that simple observation. And it's not a bad observation. It certainly looks like people generally don't like risk and frequently have to get paid to bear it. Until you look at casinos. Until you look at casinos. And again, there's an, old, there's an alternative literature that goes back to the 50s that thought about issues, not just casinos. Think about this. People buy lottery tickets, but they also buy insurance. Hmm. 
Now, this, these two things are very hard to square together, right? And the way Kahneman basically, Kahneman and Tversky basically squared it is by pointing out, based on a whole host of research they've done, that in point of fact, in some circumstances, people very much want to take on risk. They want to take on risk when they perceive themselves to be in a situation of potential loss. So if we're talking about gambling and you stand to gain $100, you're generally willing to take less than the expected value of that to avoid the gamble. You're, you're willing to take a smaller, more certain gain. Hmm. But if we're talking about losses and you stand to lose $100, Double or nothing. you are much more willing to take on risk to avoid any <clears throat> loss whatsoever. Yeah. All right. So here was the, the problem that I faced when I started reading in this literature, which is, the st as economists like to say, the stylized observation I was trying to explain that I had seen up close and personal is in the midst of a bubble, people want to hold risky assets. They want to take on as much risk as possible. Now, the theory says that you're going to want to take on risk when you're in a situation of potential loss. How can a, a bubble be a situation of potential loss? Because one of the things that goes on in the midst of a bubble is everybody feels like they're making a lot of money. So where's the loss coming in? If people want to take on risk, what's the psychological sense of loss? Is it because people don't feel it's real? No. My, <laughs> my, my hypothesis was the loss is coming in because what's going on is social comparison. Right. In the midst of a bubble, think about a bubble. A bubble can also be thought of as a pyramid. Right. It's, in essence, financial bubbles are just like pyramid schemes. Right. A pyramid scheme is where you need new money to pay off the old money. And yeah. the problem is, as the base of the pyramid grows larger and larger, it becomes harder and harder to sustain. Well, bubbles have that same characteristic. This money is flowing in and pushing up prices. But at some point, there's no new money to flow in. And since there's no real value to sustain the prices that have been The music attained. stops, the whole game's off. Right. So um, my basic observation is what's going on in a bubble is your attention is being drawn to the people above you, the people who've already made lots of money. If you look at the Wall Street Journal in the bubble, who is it reporting about? It's reporting about the founders of Yahoo. It's reporting about Masayoshi Son in, in, in Japan. <laughs> it's reporting, it's telling you all this information about these people who've become fabulously wealthy investing in these things. So two things are happening. One is you're kind of getting information that says, oh, these people are making money by doing this. I should do this too. But secondly, and more important from my theoretical perspective, it's also creating a situation of perceived loss. It is that comparison with somebody above you that makes you feel like you're falling behind. H.L. Mencken had a great line, there is no, nothing more depressing in life than watching your neighbor get rich. <laughs> and when you think about colleagues and partners, all of whom seem to be getting rich by participating, this triggers everybody's desire to take on greater and greater levels of risk. And so I went to, um, so I, I left investment banking, um, retired from my firm, and went to Columbia to do a PhD in psychology. And my dissertation was exactly on that. And I have published one paper demonstrating that in a little laboratory experiment, when you draw people's attention to whoever is doing best, you get much bigger bubbles than when you draw people's attention to whoever is doing worst. Effectively, this, uh, this scales up and down, right? You don't have to have a a total society-wide bubble. This could sure. even be in a small cohort. Absolutely. And um, yeah, I mean, now, so now I'm thinking about the fact that um, economic theory, which has long 
Well, it's not so much that economists denied the idea that people might compare themselves with others, but it certainly, it was not only not central, but effectively not incorporated in theory anyway. Yeah. And the moment you start thinking, well, you know, but people compare themselves all the time. I mean, how, who do you ever, have you ever met anybody who doesn't compare themselves to other people? And, and even with the kind of the core assumption of economics that people want to accumulate a pile of stuff, they're also looking over their shoulder at the other pile yeah, of stuff. Yeah, so there's right? a quote that's attributed, <laughs> attributed to John Stuart Mill Although, like a lot of these things, when you try and track it down, it it's turns out there's no evidence. <laughs> but it's a great quote. Men do not desire merely to be rich. Men desire to be richer than other men. Hmm. And, you know, once you start thinking about this concept, you will begin to realize this has some really profound implications, not just for the way financial markets are going to work. Because in essence, what I'm saying is, you know, bubbles are not a bug in financial markets. They're a feature of financial markets, right? It's not a case where people where something is going wrong. It is a natural consequence of the fact that people are comparing themselves to other people. And, you know, the nature of markets means that 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 once this thing is started, it is absolutely rational for people to participate. Well, absolutely is a tricky term, but there is definitely a rational argument for participating in the bubble. It is interesting as well the way that successful or very wealthy people are portrayed in terms of their personal characteristics. Uh, I remember that story you, you told me when we, when we first met about how you, you can spot who the most powerful person in the room <laughs> right. is. <laughs> right. Yeah, well. Which very, you now have to share. Yeah, well, very quickly. It's, it's one of my uh, yeah, it brushes with the great and famous stories. So when I was an investment banker, um, and actually, I will tell parenthetically, I don't think I mentioned at the time I told you this. There is a small connection to Michael Bloomberg to this story. Because what happened was um, the partner I was working with had this idea. So Mashiyoshi Son was the founder of SoftBank in Japan. And it's still a very large and successful company. But at the time of the bubble, I think it was the most valuable company in Japan. And certainly he was one of the most lionized uh, business people in Japan. So one of my partners had the idea, based on something he had been saying, that maybe he might be interested in acquiring Bloomberg, the uh, media company that Michael Bloomberg Not Blue created. Mountain Arts. No, not Blue Mountain Art. <laughs> So that was the genesis of this meeting. So we arranged a meeting to basically go pitch this idea to him. And we did it at the Ritz-Carlton in Boston. He had the whole, whole suite. The thing about this story is I went to the bathroom and coming back, I got lost. <laughs> Getting back to the room from this suite. The suite had multiple dining rooms. So um, the other thing about this story is he did this meeting while he was in his bathrobe which I thought was pretty amusing at the time. And I've used in class since then to point out to my students that if you're trying to figure out who the most important me person in a meeting is, it's going to be the person who's the worst dressed, right? So, um, yeah. But, you know, we, we look at people not just, uh, you know, people who are eccentric, but also their, their behavioral quirks like Steve Jobs. And so people now think if you behave like an asshole, uh, that's actually about being creative. And so this yeah. is becoming a... You know, we, we look at these people who have been very innovative and we wonder whether or not their personal characteristics are actually part of the secret sauce that made them successful. And it's a very, very difficult question. Um, you know, what's cause and what's effect? If you, if you, so, so I teach a class about family enterprises and the beginning of the class is about the question of who accumulates wealth in the first place. I mean, hmm. somebody's founding these family enterprises. What are what does that person's psychology, how does it influence its evolution over time? 
And, you know, by and large, although this is changing with the growth of, fin growth of finance and um, really, you know, hedge fund managers' ability to make billions of dollars, but traditionally large family fortunes are made through entrepreneurship. So it's really a question of who becomes a successful entrepreneur. And it might seem logical to try and answer that question by looking at successful entrepreneurs and asking the question, what characteristics do they seem to share? The problem with doing that is even if you observe a characteristics that say all of them share, you don't know if it was that having that characteristic caused them to become wealthy or having become wealthy has be caused them like to that. that characteristic. So the one I talk about in particular that I do think is very important to keep in mind, well, for both business, but particularly for what I talk about, which is the way they think about post-mortem decision-making, right? How they're going to allocate assets and control of these businesses after they die. The most important thing that they all share that's pretty damn obvious is they've been successful. They've accumulated a lot of money in a society that places a lot of value on that. And the one thing that we know, one of the most robust findings in psychology is that um, uh, people are overconfident. We think we're better than we are. If I survey a room full of people and ask them, how many of you think you're better than average drivers? Typically 70% of them will think they're better than average. <laughs> Well, it's not hard to imagine that somebody who has had tremendous success in life is going to be more overconfident than the even average high degree of overconfidence we observe. And um, not just overconfident, but they also do what we call overgeneralize. So having been successful in creating a business, they tend to think that they can do lots of other things that may not be closely related. For example, they may think they're a better parent than they actually are. Right. Um, so, uh, but, you know, I mean, since part of my thing is about families over multiple generations, you know, the characteristics of that first person is only a part of the story. And really, in many ways, my interest is the more deeper one about, um, you know, kind of how does this play out over time as, as, you know, now they're replaced by children who didn't create the business. No, and don't necessarily share the same values. And don't necessarily share the same values. Um, People do argue that families have a better retained memory of, of, of um, you know, the, the values of a company, yeah. of the, you know, the crises and the situations that led to them right. than professional managers. Do, do you think that's true? Hard to say. I mean, I will note that the class I teach at Wharton is very explicitly not a class about family business per se. It's a course about family enterprises. And a large part of the reason I wanted to do that was that in the United States, particularly, um, there are not a huge number of businesses that are sustained within a family over long periods of time. There are a whole host of factors why that's less likely. Now, it's more common overseas, more common internationally. Like we were talking about we were talking about what was going to happen in China. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, estate taxes is part of it. I think you know there are a bunch of cultural norms. For one thing, in the United States, there we have much deeper and thicker uh, asset markets. So it's just easier if you want to sell off a business. We have less of a tradition of family cohesion. 
Um, it's very hard to, to, you know, maintain a business and a family as it grows to, you know, from one founder to three children to, you know, seven cousins. See, see my mum is Chinese and, you know, her vision was not just we would all work in the same business, but we'd all live together in the same house. Sure, sure. And she had this vision of the family yeah. compound because, of course, if you're the eldest, you're the boss. Right. Well, maybe. So I do a case on Reliance Industries, the ah, big in Indian India. company. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, the story there is precisely that the father died, the father who, again, Classic example, unbelievable entrepreneur, creates a business that is gargantuan by Indian standards. Um, amazingly, despite the fact that he had a heart attack 20 years before he died at age 60 some odd, he had neither a will nor a succession plan. And he had two sons who were in this business. And sure enough, promptly the two sons start to fight. Sounds like the beginning of King, like the setup for King Lear. <laughs> and the older son basically says, you know, it's clear that he intended for me, his older son, to take over. And the younger son reply is, prove it. Where is it written that that's what he wanted? And the end result was they split the company up. The other interesting thing to observe about this story is they also, this is a family that lived together. They built a, uh, a, a skyscraper. Um, in Mumbai, right? A skyscraper that was going to serve as the family compound. Now, one of the brothers has since moved out, but imagine these two brothers occupying different floors of a skyscraper while they're in the midst of this massive battle over control. So, you know, I often joke, is is, uh, family business mixing business with pleasure or with pain? (laughs) <laughs> so so coming back to your question, so, you know, there is research that suggests that family businesses can be more successful. And, and one of the explanations that's offered is that they think in longer time frames. And therefore, you know, in contrast to a complaint that a lot of people have American capital markets, that they're too short term focused, that the stock market forces CEOs to really only be concerned about next quarter. Um, you know, families exist on a different time scale. Uh, the very first class, I do a cl- case about this woman, Uget Clark, um, who is an heiress. And I begin with a picture of Uget with her father, William Andrews Clark, one of the richest men you've never heard of. Um, the picture is taken about 1912. So Uget Clark would end up dying in 2011 when Barack Obama is president of the United States. Her father was born in 1839. Martin Van Buren was president of the United States. That's one father and daughter stretching from Martin Van Buren to Barack Obama. That's a long time frame. (laughs) So let me also talk about one other case, which I think gets at the heart of what I think the real issue is, and it's closely related to what you just said. So I do a case about the New York Times. The New York Times has been controlled by, uh, well, what is now the Salzberger family, um, uh, since 1896. Um, And I would argue that the New York Times, which is, of course, now a public company, um, has not been very successfully financially. Um, you know, it's a media company. Like all media companies, it suffered a lot. I mean, it's still, it, I don't think the New York Times is going broke. Um, on the other hand, I think the New York Times is an absolutely astounding brand. I mean, that's one of the most powerful brands that, that exist in this country. And I think a large part of the reason for the success of that family and that business in that sense is because the family buys into the notion of what the objective is, that the mission is not about profit maximization. The mission is about providing a free press to support American democracy, which is a great mission. So I do think there is something about families that enables them to more easily, but by no means easily, 
um, you know, create missions around organizations because that I think is what creates the rational profit. Exactly, that is what creates long-term sustainability. Is the belief? I don't. I have come to the conclusion that profit maximization or wealth maximization is not really a good share. In order to have any group cohere over time, you know, whether we're talking about a company, um, a sports team, a country, you've got to have some sense of shared mission. Hmm. And I've come to the conclusion that if your mission is just about profit maximization or wealth maximization, that's not a very compelling shared mission. I, I, I think it's very interesting when you look at uh, family enterprises and media, because this is an area, yeah. you know, in general where it's not always positive values, but there is often a sense of, of uh, purpose. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 of course, interacted with the Murdochs many times over the years when I, I was working for them in the newspaper and television yeah. business. and. You know, I remember it, this company was like an imperial court. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> it is interesting. Media businesses are one of those industries that have shown much greater family dominance. And Hearst, I think, is over a long yeah. period of time. So Hearst, um, I mean, it, of course, it's changing because the media companies have been under a lot of pressure. But historically, the the uh, in in many many geographies, the most wealthy. And a prominent family was the family that owned the local newspaper. Yeah. The Binghams, uh, I forget the one out in Seattle. I mean, just everywhere around the country. And I think that is part of it because media businesses often have not been purely about profit maximization, but they've been about, you know, having influence, um, having influence through the editorial process, et cetera. I, I, what I'm interested in is, you know, we look at a lot of these tech companies now that, that are shiny and new and the mm. founders are still very involved. And maybe Apple's the one example where the, the, the founder has now passed on to a professional manager. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he, he, it hasn't been so long that his values have fully disappetated. But, but I'm wondering whether, you know, if Google's still around, all these other companies where the founders had such a big presence, do these end up becoming family enterprises or do they just sort of disappetate over time? Um, as Niels Bohr uh, Again, perhaps apocryphally observed, making predictions is hard, especially about the future. <laughs> um, I guess my feeling is I suspect few of these tech companies are going to be passed on to family members. I think they're difficult entities. And I think the attitude of the founders is different than a lot of the traditional businesses. I mean, maybe this is my own bias. I do find that, um, you know, I come out of technology and I find, you know, they tend to think a lot like me. They're very analytic people. And, you know, it's, it's part of the, the broader question I ask in this class. I, I start the class with a quote from Andrew Carnegie's um, famous essay, uh, frequently called The Gospel of Wealth, an essay he wrote in 1888, I believe. And uh, the quote that I use is he says, look, it's no longer arguable. I mean, his terms. Again, Andrew Carnegie, very successful, very overconfident about his own abilities <laughs> and knowledge. But he says it's no longer arguable that passing on a large fortune is not good for your kids. No longer arguable. <laughs> and yet people continue to do it. And look, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate. My father was a successful entrepreneur. I've had a pretty successful career on my own. Um, I am going to help my kids out substantially, um, but I think that an analytic person has to recognize that there is some truth in that statement, that it is by no means obvious that the best way to help your kids is by giving them as much money as you possibly can. 
And it is my view that, for example, when you see what Bill Gates has done with Warren Buffett on this giving pledge, you know, basically getting lots and lots of billionaires to sign up to commit to giving at least half of their wealth away, um, I suspect a lot of them are going to do a lot more than half of their wealth. And I think it's been driven by the realization that if it's not really going to help your kids... And equally important, it, you know, as I like to say, you know, s- narrowing your choice of CEO to two or three people identified at birth doesn't seem like the ideal pathway to maximizing the value of a company. I mean, again, it's that back and forth. I think in recognition of that, most entrepreneurs, uh, the, the, it's not a novel observation with me, but for most entrepreneurs, um, the company is their oldest child and in many ways their favorite child. And so it's my view that most of these technology companies are not going to become family enterprises because that's just not consistent with the way these CEOs think. I mean, it's a very interesting question because they, many of them have used one of the, a set of the basic techniques that family, families have used to maintain control as the capital base of these companies has grown over time, things such as two, uh, two-tier class structures. Yeah. Um, I've always been skeptical about these structures, and I wonder what's going to happen over time as, as the, the logic that says, well, what you're really doing is keeping control in the hands of the founding entrepreneur that seems like a good thing, but when the founding entrepreneur is gone, or maybe when the founding entrepreneur is just in their 80s, is this still a good thing? So that's a whole other set of issues. <laughs> well, Eric, it's been wonderful uh, seeing you again and having you on the show. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks so much. It's been, been a pleasure. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.